talk to you this morning about the hard work of rest. Because if there is an engine that fuels your work life, it's actually counterculturally the rest that we need and that we achieve that allows us to be productive. And I say counterintuitively because we actually think that it's our, it's our increased energy, our, our, our drive, our commitment, our, our passion, our focus, all of these things, but all of those without rest have a way of, well, it's like turbocharging an engine that has no shutoff, and eventually it just melts. So what I'd like to do with you this morning is read a passage from the Gospel of Luke and uh, introduce the theme of rest, or using Scripture's language, the theme of Sabbath, and then unpack it a little bit together in the time that we have and conclude with, with a series of what I hope are very practical ideas or suggestions about how to cultivate soul-deep Sabbath rest. Turn with me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. We're looking at verses 1 through 11. Luke 6, on Sabbath, or one Sabbath, Jesus was going out through the grain fields. His disciples began to pick some heads of grain, and they rubbed them in their hands, and then they ate the kernels. Now some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God. He took the consecrated bread. He ate what was lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and he was teaching. And a man who was there has had a right hand that was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up. Stand in front of everyone. So he got up and he stood there. And Jesus said to all of them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? He looked around at all of them and and then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious. And they began to discuss with one another what they might do with Jesus. Let's pray and then dig in. God, our Father, whatever position of life we find ourselves in this morning, exhausted, energized, employed, retired, unemployed, self-employed, God, there is truth here for each of us. Give us the ability to hear it, but more importantly, Allow it to sink deep into our lives, that place where it gives certainty and security, where the practice of Sabbath doesn't feel like an onerous burden, but a joyful release and a gift. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, today we come heart to heart, face to face, with the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, you remember them? Six days you shall labor, and on the seventh day you will rest, for it is a Sabbath unto the Lord. You shall not do any work, for the seventh day is the day that the Lord rested. Listen, I know we all have different starting points and relationships when it comes to the subject of work. There are people here who are out of work. There are people who would love to have more work. There are people who have far too much of it. Uh, there are people who have said to me that they have a problem with work, with discipline. But, but by and large, in the GTA, the biggest problem that we have is not with work, but with rest, with the discipline of Sabbath. And so very quickly, and I know you don't have notes in your page, you just have a blank page, but if you want to write down these three headings, we're going to talk about Sabbath from these three points of view. Why do we need it? Why do we need it? Where do we get it? And then the third question we'll ask together, how do we do it? And we're going to use Luke chapter 6 as our launching point. Look first, this is under the question of why we need it. Look at verses 1 and 2. Jesus and his disciples, they're traveling through a field on the Sabbath day. Now, a couple of the disciples reach down and they, they grab some heads of grain. And they just started rubbing them. And you know if you rub grain, you can get the, the seeds, the wheat seeds to come out. And, and they put them in their mouth and they started eating them and... And seeing the disciples do this, some of the religious elite, the teachers, the leaders, came alongside them and, and condemned them of breaking the commandments of God. It was one of the 39 forms of work that were prohibited on the Sabbath day. Written in a series of commandments called the Halakha, at the time all the religious regulations specified very concretely, what you could do, what you could not do. You could only travel a certain distance from home on the Sabbath. You could not reap grain in the field. You could not heal unless there was a life hanging in the balance. All of these regulations, 39 of them. Now granted, the Pharisees found very creative ways around them. So if there was a certain distance you could travel from home, say 800 meters. I don't know if that's the distance or not, but for example... But you had planned to go visit your relatives who lived three kilometers away. Here's what you would do. The day before the Sabbath, you would venture out 800 meters and you would hide a tooth toothbrush. You go another 800 meters and there you'd leave, I don't know, your diary. 800 more meters and there a cloak. And you would apply the principle, the scriptural principle, that where your possessions are, there your home is, and you were never more than 800 meters from home. You see, I mean, they were creative in finding ways around the Sabbath principle, but this one particularly irked them when they saw Jesus and his disciples. And we look at it, we look at it 20 centuries later through this lens and say, how, how legalistic, how ridiculous, how how moralistic, what, a, what an awful bunch of rules. And we turn our noses up, but look at Jesus' response. This is important. Jesus doesn't say, the Son of Man has come to do away with the Sabbath, to get rid of all of this. 
What does he say instead? The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And we'll get to that in a second, but at the very least, what that has to mean is, I'm all about the Sabbath. Jesus says, the Sabbath is what I am all about. And so here's what we learn, at least to start with. In probably the most workaholic culture in the history of the world, that's us, I think we, we dare not turn our noses up at any effort, even misguided efforts, to give people the one thing that's crucial to making human life possible, which is rest. I want to introduce you to a writer this morning who wrote, I think, uh, an absolutely marvelous article in the New York Times magazine. Her name is Judith Shulevitz. Jewish name, Jewish writer, but wrote a fascinating article called Bring Back the Sabbath. Keller references it a lot in his teachings. Listen to what she wrote. She said, My mood would darken every weekend. By Saturday afternoon, I would be unresponsive and morose. My normal routine, which involved brunch with friends, it made me feel impossibly restless. And then I began to do something. Something that, as a teenager, profoundly put me off. Something I could never imagine wanting to do. I began dropping in on a nearby church. Synagogue, in her case. And finally, I developed a theory for my condition, she says. There's ample evidence that our relationship to work is out of whack. So let me argue on behalf of an institution that has kept workaholism in check now for thousands of years. She goes on, she says, people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is not work. But the inventors of the Sabbath understood that it was much more complicated than that. You cannot just downshift casually and easily. How many of you identify with that? You can't just shut it off. The way that you might slip into bed at the end of a long day. As the cat in the hat says, it's fun to have fun, but you've got to know how. And this is what she concludes. This is why the rules around Sabbath were so exactingly intentional. They didn't exist to torture the faithful. Interrupting all that ceaseless striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of the will, one that has to be bolstered by habit. It's a fascinating article. It's on the internet. You can search it out. What she's saying, though, is simply this. Our relationship to work in our society has become so seriously out of whack that anyone who thinks you're able just to get rested by knocking off whenever you're tired is hopelessly naive. The ability to deeply rest, a life or death thing, something that that nobody can do without, it turns out it's not as natural as we think it is. It's not simple. It's absolutely difficult, and it requires an enormous amount of discipline and practice. That's what she's saying. Why would that be? Why is it so hard? Let me toss out four trends, at least. See if if you resonate with these. More and more, at least in Western culture, jobs are insecure. Jobs Whole departments, if they don't perform, if they don't turn a profit, are eliminated at a moment's notice. 
I'm not sure there's ever been a culture where job security was so bad, so unpredictable. My daughter's in university for the first year. One of the things they're telling those kids is that whatever you start in is not what you're going to finish in. You need to prepare yourself for at least six major career changes. Not position changes within a career, career changes, because it's so insecure. First trend. Second trend, we're all overworked. been lots of research into this. Whereas it used to be that the people at the top of a company made maybe 10 times, maybe even extreme cases, 20 times more than the people at the bottom. Now it's more like 100 times or 200 times. And so if you find yourself higher up the ladder rather than lower down, it means that you are expected to work an enormous number of hours. And if you don't, there's a long lineup behind you of people that will. And the people on the bottom wind up having to take multiple jobs just to survive. So everybody's overworked. It doesn't matter where you are on the scale. Here's the third trend. Technology. Ah, technology. <coughs> you can work anywhere, which means that you will work everywhere. It means you can't stop work. It spills into every nook and cranny of your life. And here's the fourth one. There is this enormous psychological, maybe social pressure for work to be fulfilling. I don't know, maybe this series has heaped on more of that. I hope it hasn't. But I realize this is a little bit more complex, but I know that people who study culture are unanimous on this idea, that, that in traditional societies, you used to derive your meaning in life through faith and family, not through work. Work wasn't important, at least not in that situation. You found a way to make a living to provide for the needs of your family. That's what it was about. We are the first culture in history that says you define yourself by deciding what you want to be and then working hard to attain it at the highest possible heights. So you have those four trends. And together they mean that we are probably more desperately in need of rest than any other culture. It means that we have less time for rest than ever. And it means that on the inside, emotionally, we have less ability to rest and relax than anyone ever has. So that's the situation. And as bad as it is, as aggravating as the world is, in comes this idea of Sabbath, this ancient, ancient practice that's, that's not just meant to be a response to modern, hectic life. Uh, an ancient practice that, that gets at an abiding human problem that seems to always have been there. There's something that's always been there, down deep. It's something that addressed in the Sabbath. Again, I'm going to quote a bit from, from Judith Shulevitz. Because here's what she says the deeper thing is. When the Sabbath was still sacred, she said, not only did drudgery give way to festivity and family gatherings and worship, but the machinery of self-censorship shut down. And it stilled the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. The eternal inner murmur of self 
reproach, that inner machinery. What's she talking about? You know, we referenced this three weeks ago. Sleep, sleep experts would say that in order to be restored, you don't just need a certain amount of sleep, you need a certain quality of sleep, a depth of sleep, what they call REM sleep, rapid eye movement, because I guess you look kind of goofy when it's going on. Your eyes are fluttering all about. Your, your mind is doing whatever your mind does when it's in deep sleep. And you only achieve that state after a certain amount of time. In other words, if you took eight one-hour naps throughout the course of a day and said, hey, I slept for eight hours, the next day you would be absolutely exhausted because you have to sleep a certain amount of time before you get into that deep sleep, that REM sleep. It's not just about the amount of rest, it's about the quality of the rest that you get. So here's what we're saying. Yes, you need rest from physical exertion, from physical work, but there's a deeper issue. There is a work underneath the work. That eternal murmur, that need to prove yourself to yourself, to, to others. It, it, it makes work so wearying. You're always trying to prove yourself. The work is never enough. And, and it's that work that's addressed by the Sabbath, by that deep sleep, the deep rest, the, the REM sleep of the soul. You have to have it. No number of vacations in the world will help without it. Without that deep soul rest, physical rest isn't going to help. You need Sabbath rest. That's why we need it. Here's the second question that's there on your sheet. Where do we get it? Let's look at what Jesus says. Back in the Gospel of Luke, they say he's violating the Sabbath. In chapter 6, how does he respond? <coughs> he says, have you ever read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, he took consecrated bread and he ate it. It was only lawful for the priest to eat it, and, and yet he ate it. He even gave some away to his companions. I, I know that communion is a, is a high point in our service, and it's sacred, and it's rich, and, and it's memorable, but I don't think our understanding of communion even begins to plumb the depths. It would be like, for those of you who have a Catholic background, going behind the altar into the cabinet where the host, the elements for the Eucharist were kept after they've been blessed and helping yourself to what is in there. That, that's the experience that Jesus is referencing. It's an incident in 1 Samuel 21. We're told David was running for his life. He runs into the tabernacle. He takes that shoe bread, it was called, the bread of the present, sacred stuff, consecrated, and he ate it. And Jesus implies that he was never condemned for it. God said there wasn't anything wrong, or at least he didn't point out anything wrong with what happened. He wasn't condemned. Now think about the implications of that for a second. I know we're digging a little bit deeply into Scripture here, but it's important. If the Sabbath and of worship regulations around the Sabbath can be set aside in a pinch, what does that mean? 
I mean, to be clear, there's no place in the Bible that I'm aware of where the moral law gets set aside in a pinch. There's no place where God says, well, you were in a hurry, so I guess committing adultery was all right. Or or worshiping an idol was okay, or stealing, or armed robbery, that was fine, you were in trouble, or you were in a rush, whatever it was. There's no place where the moral law is set aside. But the Sabbath, the ceremonial worship regulations are set aside in a pinch. What does it mean? It means they're provisional. It means that in some sense they're temporary because they point to something else that's coming along. And when it arrives, the laws themselves are subsumed into that thing to which they point. Now what is it they're pointing to? The answer is in the next verse. Jesus said to them, assuming they're thinking along these lines, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. It's an astounding claim. I'm the one that all those Sabbath regulations pointed to. I can give you the deep rest of the soul that you most need. I am the Lord of rest. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Now you know what that means. There's two ways to take it. It means if you want rest, you have to go to Jesus. Here's the other way to take it. If you think you've already gone to Him, but you don't, if you don't experience, you don't feel rest in your life, then maybe you don't realize fully what it is you have. You haven't taken a hold of it. You haven't really understood what you have. He is the Lord of rest. Let me take you just to a couple of verses that are important. You can jot these in your notes and, and track them later. Go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. God had just finished creating the world, and this is what we read. God saw everything that he made, it was very good. And then he finished the work he'd been doing, and on the seventh day he rested from the work. God rested, seventh day, right? You know the story. (coughs) You ever stop to ask what that meant? Why did God rest? Was he tired? If he's omnipotent, all-powerful, did he somehow use too much power and he... And he exhausted himself and he needed to rest. If God can't be tired, then what in the world does it mean that he rested? Because you and I think we define rest as what we do when we're overtired. What does it mean that God rested if he wasn't tired? Here's the answer. One of the things that's so neat about the creation account is that after each masterpiece of creation... God speaks, he utters a phrase, the same recurring phrase again and again. He looks out over it and he says, it is good, it is good. And at the very end, in the passage we read, he says, it is very good, very good. That's what it means to rest, to be utterly satisfied with what has done. That's the way that you walk away. It's the only way that you can stop that you can put down what you're doing by saying that it was good. It's good. And now you can rest. Now you can relax. The definition of resting, you might want to write this down. The definition of resting is to be utterly satisfied with what was done. Different, right? To be utterly satisfied with what was done. 
Here's the second verse. Scroll forward to the book of Hebrews, in chapter 4. There's a chapter that's talking all about the gospel. The writer of Hebrews is talking to Christians about what it means to believe in Jesus. And listen to what he says. He says, There remains then a rest for the people of God, for anyone who, through the gospel, enters God's rest. Rests from their own work, just as God rested from His. An amazing statement. What does it mean to be a Christian? There's all kinds of ways of answering that question, but here's an important answer. A Christian is someone who's able to look at their work the same way God looked at His work. A Christian is someone who's able to look at their life the way that God looked at His life. (coughs) You're being told here in Hebrews that through Christ you can look at your life, you can look at yourself and say, it's good. It's enough. There's nothing else that needs to be done. All the work that is most important has been finished. Now, how can that be? Sounds impossible. I'm going to go one last time to to Judith Shulovitz. Such a great article. This is great. She says, Not even our group leisure activities can do for us what the Sabbath could once be counted on to do. So your point is, it's not just enough to to knock off and go out there and and indulge in whatever recreational activities that you like. That's not going to give you rest from that eternal murmur, all that inner machinery. She says, not even our group leisure activities can do that for us. What the Sabbath rituals could once be counted on to do, what religious rituals do as they promote togetherness. They are designed, here's what's important, They are designed to convey to us a story about who we are. The story told by the Sabbath is the story of creation. God rested, and we rest in order to honor the image of God in us, to remind us that there's more to us than our work. Do you see that? In other words, what really is our problem is not the presence of work, it's the absence of rest. The writer of Hebrews says, through Jesus, and only through Jesus do you find it. Jesus is the one who said, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, all those who labor, and I will give you rest. Sense what he's saying? Everybody's serving something. Everybody's trying to get their identity from something. But only if you make me the meaning of your life will you find that deep rest. Only if you look to me can you then look at your work and say, everything that's necessary has already been done and it's good. We referenced it three weeks ago, but remember that movie Chariots of Fire? It's the only movie I know of, at least in the past 50 years, the only movie made that deals specifically with the subject of the Sabbath. And it follows the life of a series of characters. One guy who's absolutely driven, cannot stop working. He's an Olympic caliber athlete. He's a runner. He's a sprinter. And somebody asks him, why is it that you're working so hard? And here's his answer. You might remember this from a few weeks ago. I have 10 seconds, he says. He's talking about the 100-yard dash. I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. That's the work under work. He's driven. 
and it's driving him crazy. But there's another guy in the story. He finds out that the medal race is going to be held on a Sunday. He's a Christian. He's committed to the practice of Sabbath. And here's the important thing, and it's not a legalistic thing at all. He's so secure in who he is in Christ that he's willing to say, and he has no problem saying, I just won't run. I just won't run. It just doesn't matter to me that much. The irony is that the driven guy runs and gets the gold medal, but it's not enough. It's never enough because the work underneath work, the work that wearies you is never finished except in Jesus. In Jesus, God looks at you and says, it's enough. It's good. In Jesus, you hear, it's finished. And when you get that, when you get the why you need rest and where you find it, only then can you move move to the third point, which is how you do it. I mean, it would have been really easy to to do a 15-minute sermon with a series of practical steps, but the practical steps don't work. They don't work unless they're undergirded by by the acknowledgement that you need soul-deep rest and Jesus is uniquely positioned to provide it. Vacations can't deal with the deep thing. A little bit of time off on its own doesn't deal with it. That REM sleep of the soul. Well, let me quickly at least list a few things. You want to jot these down. You can think about them later. There are two inner disciplines and there are a few outer disciplines that you can use to practice the Sabbath. First, the inner disciplines. If you don't do these two, then all the outer ones, they're not going to work. They don't matter. Get the inner ones right. According to the Bible, the Sabbath is an act of liberation. It's about freedom. Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. God says, remember when you were slaves in Egypt, and I brought you out with a mighty hand. Therefore, obey and observe the Sabbath day. Isn't that interesting? And Why does God connect the two? Why? You were slaves. Now you're free, therefore observe the Sabbath. I'll tell you why. Slaves never had a day off. You don't rest when you're a slave. And what I'm talking about here is not just working for income. A lot of us just can't say no. We are so relentlessly overcommitted. We're way too busy. We're always busy. And if you're always busy and you can't say no to people and you can't set aside time, you are a slave. Maybe it's self-imposed slavery, but you're a slave. You're a slave to your own needs, your own insecurities. You're a slave to your family's hopes, to your culture's expectations. You're a slave to your company. Whatever it is, you are in bondage. You're a slave. And you have to say deep in your heart, deep in your own soul, the Sabbath is an act of liberation. This is about freedom. My work does not define me. Christ alone defines me. It's that inner discipline. And it says I'm not defined by how many customers I get, by how much money I make, by how well I'm doing, by how much of an expert I become. I'm taking the time. And I'm not going to think twice about it because I'm not a slave. Here's the second interdiscipline. The Sabbath, not just an act of liberation, the Sabbath is an act of trust. Remember, our Sabbath is connected 
with God's Sabbath, he worked and then he rested? What does it mean? Well, one of the things it means is that uh, it's that you acknowledge that relationship. There's a problem a lot of us have, and unless you tell yourself this as an inner discipline, you're you're not going to be able to take the time off that you need to. You need to say this to yourself. I am not the one who keeps the world running. Say that. I am not the one who keeps the world running. Ultimately, I'm not the one who provides security for my family. I'm not the one who will meet all of their needs. I'm not the one. God is the one, and I'm not God. Sabbath is not just a discipline of liberation. It's a discipline of trust that says, I am not God. Those are the two inner disciplines. And very quickly, we'll do this in about four minutes. Here are the external disciplines. First, take more Sabbath time. Well, somebody says, how much time should I take? We'll get to that in a second, but the first part of the answer is easy. Probably more than you're taking now. Take more. Take more. Second, you need to balance your Sabbath time, which means you need to do some things that are avocational, some things that are contemplative, and some things that are inactive. Avocational means not your vocation, not the things that you ordinarily do. Fishing is an avocation if you don't make your living by catching fish, right? A guy who makes His living fishing shouldn't fish on his day off, but maybe you can. Maybe that's recreational for you. Avocational. Contemplative. You are not doing the deep work of rest just by doing some leisure things. Why? Because you have to tell yourself again and again the story of who you are. The reason you can't rest is that you're not sure that you're okay. That your life is okay. So you need to worship. You need to make worship a practice of the Sabbath to tell you again who you are in Christ. And the third thing, it's, it's inactive. You know, in the Old Testament, it wasn't just people that had the Sabbath. Land had a Sabbath. Every so many years, the field was given time to rest. What did that mean? It didn't just mean you planted a different crop. It meant you planted nothing. The field lay fallow. And whatever came up, came up. And the ground rested. You need some of that kind of time. Inactive time. And whatever comes up, comes up. Sabbath balances those three. Avocational, contemplative, inactive. Here's the third thing. Be accountable for your Sabbath. Listen, it's not possible in this world to avoid busy seasons of work. You need somebody, though, who looks you in the eye and says, because you've asked them to remind you, that when this season at work is up, when that contract is up, I'm going to stop you because you don't want to spend the rest of your life in under-Sabbath mode. Place yourself in a position of accountability. Fourthly, inject Sabbath time right there into your work. How does that work? In the Old Testament, there was a law. It was called gleaning. It meant that when you went to reap the grain in your field, you didn't reap right out to the very edges. It was putting the brakes on what was out there, saying you don't have to work right to the limits of your capacity. 
It was designed to limit productivity so you wouldn't overwork. It's not enough to work like a demon and then take time off. At some point, you're going to have to say, I'm going to do the things that I need to do, avocationally, contemplatively, inactively. I'm going to do my Sabbath, and I'm not going to let work overwhelm me. And here's the last one. Community. And I've already hinted at this. The only way you're going to get through these things and figure them out is to huddle together with some other people, hopefully in one of our small groups, and ask the questions as you brainstorm together. How is it that we keep ourselves from getting overwhelmed? How do we keep work in its proper place? How do we do leisure? How do we do rest? How do we figure it all out? The only person whose eyes you should have to prove yourself to looks back at you now and says, it's good. It's finished. You let that attitude sink deeply into your life and, and it will change the way that you work. Let's pray. I'll invite the worship team to come and join me on the stage. We thank you, Father, for giving us what we need to know. That we're able to have deep peace, deep poise, that there can be a calm in our lives, that it comes because we know Jesus and We know that He's done everything necessary. He's finished the work. We pray, therefore, that we could take a look at all of the other work that we do and never be overwhelmed by it. Get rid of our perfectionism, Lord. Get rid of our overwork. Get rid of our underwork, because I know, Lord, that that sometimes we underwork because we're also afraid of failure. The Gospel takes that out, too. But we thank You, Father, for the gift of work, for making all work even simple work, sacred. But we also know that we don't realize it. So by your Holy Spirit, help us to acknowledge the sacred calling to work and the sacred gift of Sabbath rest. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.